We read scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter. Our text is taken from the middle of the chapter, the section pertaining to deacons, verses 8 through 13. We won't reread that, so we pay careful attention to that part of the passage. We hear the inspired word of God. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And here follow the words of our text. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're thankful this morning for the opportunity to install new office bearers here at Calvary. We know not what the future holds for the church. It may be that God has trouble in store, persecution, perhaps loss of a place to worship. It may be that there will be trouble within the congregation or within the denomination. We know not what the future holds. But we know God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's the one who holds and preserves his people and guides them through this life to everlasting glory. An evidence of that faithfulness of God and his preservation of his church is found in his provision of office bearers. God provides men to take up the role of the offices of elder and deacon and pastor for the sake of the well-being of his flock. 
And God, once again, here at Calvary, has demonstrated to our congregation His faithfulness. God has given to us men whom He will rule and through whom He will guide us, through whom Christ will be present. And God's blessing comes to us through these men who rule on behalf of Christ. As they take up their responsibilities, they do so not for themselves, not for their own honor, but they take up the word and they rule in connection with the word. What God does, beloved, is God puts Christ in the midst of the church through the offices. And God displays his love and his care for us in providing us, these men, to represent the threefold office of Christ. Pastors as prophets, elders as kings, and the deacons as priests. Faithful, diligent rule demands prayer. They must be much in prayer. And they also need the prayer of the congregation on their behalf. Now this morning on the occasion of the installation of office bearers, we focus on the office of the deacon. The office of deacon has fallen into disrepair in our day. It's often not an office where faithfulness to the scriptures is evident. Our desire is that our deacons labor in the consciousness of that calling that God has given. And we find specifically the calling here in verses 8 through 13 of 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, we take this as our text this morning. The faithful deacon. Noting, first of all, the important calling that God gives to the deacon. Secondly, the qualifications, the important qualifications that are set forth here for that one. And finally, the great blessing. The word deacon means servant. That can clearly be demonstrated by the use of the word in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, there are only a couple places where the word is translated deacon. All of the other places where the word is used, the translation of the word is servant. The places where it is translated deacon are one in this text here, but then also in Philippians 1 verse 1 where Paul sends his greeting to the bishops and the deacons. So we understand that in those contexts, clearly the reference is to deacons. But far broader is the application of this word. So that, for instance, we have in Matthew 23, 11, Be not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And that same word here for deacon is translated servant appropriately. In John 12, verse 26, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Again, we understand the proper translation, servant there. Romans 16, 1 and 2, the word is used actually to refer to Phoebe, acknowledging that she was a servant of Christ, used by Christ, in her capacity to serve the congregation and the saints in her place. The central idea then of the deacon is that of a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ who serves the needy within the congregation. We saw that from the form for the installation of office, that a primary aspect of the office and the primary reason for instituting the office was in order that the needy be served. And so the deacons serve the needy, especially by bringing the Word of God. The office of the minister is to bring the Word of God. The office of the elders to bring the Word of God. So also the office of the deacon. 
Each office brings the word of God according to its unique character, and each office then shares in common its dependence upon the word of God. The word is central, and the entire work of the office bearers is to apply that word to the circumstances and the situations of those to whom they are called. The pastor to the congregation, the elders to those with whom they visit, and the deacons also to those with whom they make visit. Their authority lies in the word of God alone. And they bring by bringing the word Christ to bear on the circumstance and the situation. They're not bringing their own words, not their own opinions, not their own ideas. They're coming with Christ. Apart from the word, the offices have no meaning. They have no authority. But Christ is present through his word. All the offices then likewise are offices of service. The minister is a servant. He's called to serve the congregation. The elders are called to serve on behalf of Christ, the congregation. Similarly, the deacons. The deacons are called to be servants, ministers of mercy. They're called to show pity, to show compassion, to show care to those who are needy, those who are in situations where they find themselves helpless. And so the deacons represent Christ as the merciful high priest. Jesus Christ came in order to show mercy to his people. And how did he especially show it? As servant, he sacrificed himself. He gave of himself even unto death for the sake of those whom God had given him. And as one who served us then so sincerely, so genuinely that he gave of his own life for the sake of his church, we experience the wonder of his life living within us. We understand the fundamental idea behind the idea of a servant. By nature, we are slaves to the devil. We are those who are called to serve the devil, and the devil has us enslaved to him. But by a wonder of grace, God sent a Savior in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to break that slavery. He came in order to break those bonds of sin, to take away the guilt and the shame of that sin, so that we confess there is therefore now no condemnation We are new creatures in Christ. And the result of that wonder is that we have now been made servants of Jesus Christ. No longer slaves to the devil, now joyful servants of our master, Jesus Christ. And counting it a privilege then to spend ourselves for his sake and for his glory. All of us count it a privilege to be the servants of Jesus Christ. But in a special way, God appoints the office bearers to carry out that servanthood through the offices that they represent. Ministers of Christ as deacons to show forth God's mercy and God's love in Jesus Christ. And that's why the form for the ordination stressed that the work of deacons is also to bring the comforting words of Scripture to the needy. The word is that which they need to hear. They don't just need money. They don't just need assistance in their physical endeavors. They need to hear the word of God. And that word of God is that which comforts, builds them up, and gives them strength. Because the offices are to officially bring the word of God to the congregation, the office is limited to men. This is clearly set forth by the apostle and by our Lord Jesus Christ throughout the scriptures. Women, according to 1 Corinthians 14.34, are, are to keep silent in the church. Now, the application of that is not that they're not to talk in the church, not that they don't have a role to play even in the church. 
Women speak up at Bible studies. We appreciate their input. Women are involved in even Sunday school and various activities within the congregation. We're grateful for the place that God has given them. But God gives women insight. He gives them opportunity. But God does not call the women officially now on behalf of the church to bring the word of God to members of the congregation. That role falls to the office bearers, the pastor, elders, and deacons. And so while we celebrate the gifts that God has given to the women of our congregation, and we're thankful for the role and the place they occupy, we realize it's not their calling, it's not their obligation officially to bring God's word to the congregation. If the deacon was just a physical servant who merely was to give money and give assistance to the poor and needy, then we can understand how the position could be well-occupied by women. If the deacon was simply required to keep the books, there would be no need for anyone other than women to occupy that role. But the office would not reflect Christ in the manner that Christ desires. The office is more than that. The office is the office by which the mercy of Jesus Christ is shown and the wonder of God's love is brought to the needy through the word of God. God brings his authoritative word. And we understand as we're going to go on, the need for boldness then, because as the word of God comes to bear on the finances of members of the congregation, as it bears on their calling to be stewards, there's going to be friction. There's going to be tension. There's a necessity there of boldness on the part of the deacons in order to know the word not only, but to bring the application and the admonition that's required as to the place of finances in the life of the child of God, the calling to be good stewards. God calls men to bring the word. And the office is the means by which God then uses his word to encourage those who are discouraged who perhaps are struggling and experiencing trials and afflictions in their life. That which is their encouragement is not chiefly the funds and the money, but the word and the encouragement of Christ's presence with them and Christ's care for them and the calling that is theirs to be diligent servants of Christ in the midst of the congregation. And so God calls men who are qualified and capable to bring words of comfort, words of encouragement in order that Christ comfort the needy. The office of a deacon then is not a position, we would say, that one, that women ought to desire. Women already, as we noted, occupy an important place in the church. And Titus 2, Proverbs 31, lay out the important calling that God gives to women. Whether they're married or unmarried, whether they have children or don't have children, there is a labor of love that God calls them to in coming next to other women, assisting them, showing that care and that love as mentors one toward another. God gives to women the calling and the responsibilities that are many in terms of training up the children that God is pleased to give them, living diligently and faithfully within the calling that God gives and God provides. So that the deacon is an office that is separated, distinct, not higher, not more glorious. God calls every member of the congregation to the office of believer and God gives to us various roles. But now God distinguishes the three offices, and peculiarly 
qualifies men then to bring the word of God officially through those offices. Many men in the congregation will never serve in the special offices. In no way is their position or place less than those who occupy the offices. God calls us to be diligent stewards. He calls us to know the word and to live in the conscious wonder of it. And as we're called to live in the various position and place that God gives us, we're thankful for Christ's presence through the offices. And Jesus Christ's own humble service as a suffering servant constitutes the model for all of us, but especially for office bearers. Office bearers serve on behalf of Christ. And their desire is to bring glory and honor to Christ and to comfort the congregation with the words of Christ. The office then is the office of distributing the mercies of Christ with the word of God. That was the reason why in Acts 6 the office of deacon originally was instituted. You recall the widows were being neglected and the apostles didn't have time to be caring for and ministering to their various needs. And so goods had to be collected for them Time had to be spent with them, bringing them the comfortable words of Scripture, encouraging them in their situation. And the apostles didn't have time. And so office, the office of deacon was instituted in order to meet that great need in the church. Goods are to be collected, not just financial goods. and maybe other needs that members may have that can be met in different ways. And so the deacons are diligent stewards then, collecting these goods, Goods that are not just given to the deacons, but goods also that are in that way then given to Christ and bestowed upon Christ. As the members of the congregation acknowledge that we're mere stewards of what we have. What we have is not ours, and therefore we give of what we have for the sake of the body. And the deacons now take those goods, they take that which has been given, and their calling now is to distribute it to those who have need. Needs of food, clothing, gas, labor, assistance perhaps, meals, so that the deacons then are busy collecting in order that might be distributed. Now constantly throughout the ages, the deacons have faced encroachment of the state on their labor. So much so that increasingly it seems that the state takes over all the responsibilities of the diaconate. And the deacons then are left with very little to do. From the time of Constantine the Great, the presence of the government and its involvement in religion was a challenge. Now, of necessity, the state assists the poor because not all the members of the state are members of a church. And we understand that the state desires a certain level of prosperity to be maintained among its members. And so the state is busy collecting taxes then and giving those taxes to the needy. But they don't do so with the word. They don't do so with the comfortable words of scripture. They don't do so in connection with the position and place of our possessions as stewards of Christ. And as such, the state then, in general, creates a dependency on itself. There's no comfort. The funds aren't coming from Christ. They're not coming with the mercies of Christ. And as a result, often that dependency can be harmful. We read in Proverbs 12, verse 10, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Though they come as seemingly tender mercies, they're cruel because they're not assisting these members in the word. And they're not assisting them in giving thanks to God and pursuing God's glory. 
Deacons then, through the ages, have struggled. And for the most part, the consensus has been that members of the congregation who are truly in need need to turn to the church. Look to the church first, not to the state. The church is here to assist. And the church will see to it then that the needs of the members are met. And so the deacons are busy not only collecting, but then encouraging the members to come to the church, to come to Christ, and to be assured of the place that Christ occupies as one who is a merciful high priest who loves and cares for his saints, caring for them physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, in all the different aspects of their life. Much wisdom is required then of the deacons as they take up this labor. Having determined need, the deacons now bring the gifts then that are necessary, whether it be food or money or meals, whether it be labor that's necessary or needed, and they do so as not gifts from the church, but gifts from Christ. Christ now is the one who is to be seen through them. And they make that clear as they bring those gifts with the word of God and make clear that this is not us, this is not our labor, this is a labor of love on behalf of Christ. And we take no credit. This is that which is the work of Jesus Christ. Needy families then are directed to Christ, who is the priest of mercy, directed to the one who loves them, who cared for them so much that he gave his life for them, and who loves them in their struggles and their challenges of life, and who's there to support and to carry them and to lead them through this life to the glory that awaits. The deacon then must never forget that he is a priest of Christ's mercy. His labor is not to humiliate. It's not to humble the needy. His task is not to tear down. It's not to destroy. He brings the mercies of Christ carefully, in love, as a faithful steward of Christ. And always his calling, if he's going to be an heir, is going to be on the side of generosity, to be more merciful than stingy, and to show in that way the rich liberality of Christ toward his church. Some may not need financial need as much as they need comfort. There are many deacons and diaconates who keep themselves busy bringing the word of comfort to members of the congregation. They distribute very little, but they're active. They still have committees going out every month, and they're busy within the congregation going to members who need comfort. An important role of the diaconate as servants of Jesus Christ. And the deacons then praying for the wisdom too to realize that to help someone financially may not be to assist them. It may be to hurt them in the long run. So that the wisdom then of knowing what is the situation. Is it a matter of an income problem or a spending problem? And that becomes then the difficulty that requires much wisdom and to bring the counsel of Scripture to bear on the circumstances and situation. The words of Scripture to those who are in need. To a large extent, that labor of the deacons has been forgotten and neglected in our day and age. But the church order in Article 25 emphasizes that role as an important obligation. The office peculiar to the deacons is diligently to collect alms and other contributions of charity and after mutual counsel, faithfully and diligently, to distribute the same to the poor as their needs may require it. And then notice this, to visit and comfort the distressed. And then also to exercise care that the alms are not misused. 
of which they shall render an accounting consistory, and also if anyone desires to be present to the congregation at such a time as the consistory may see fit. Laboring on behalf of Christ with his word, ministering to the needs of the congregation, that's the calling that God places upon these men. And we understand then the necessary qualifications that are set forth. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. What's striking here is that the qualifications for deacon are no less important than those that are given to the elders. The deacons need to be men of strong spiritual stature. They are to be men of personal godliness. They are to be men who have the Holy Spirit and are living out of the Spirit and living and walking in wisdom in their lives. These are men who as is true of all of us, are not perfect. We're still sinners. But nevertheless, we're living out of Christ and we're pursuing His will. And we understand sanctification is a continued work of God's grace in our lives. These are men of prayer who confess their entire dependence upon God, who look to Him for help in the midst of their need, and who are striving daily to live in fellowship and communion with the one who is their Lord and their Master, Jesus Christ. And so qualifications are laid out here, negatively and positively. Negatively, we note here, not double-tongued. We understand that, two-faced. We know individuals whom we've encountered who are this way. They say one thing, they do another thing. Or perhaps they tell us one thing, but then they say something else to someone else. John Calvin writes concerning this requirement, This is a fault that is hard to avoid in this kind of work, and yet which more than any other should be completely absent from it. There's a sincerity, there's a confidentiality that's necessary in dealing with the needy. Untold harm and untold grief has come in situations where deacons, perhaps, become frustrated with their work and begin to talk negatively, maybe, about those with whom they've been working and with whom they've been dealing. So that they're saying one thing to those with whom they're visiting, they're saying another thing perhaps to others. I recall one time a deacon talking to me who was becoming very frustrated with the situation and the case in which they were working. And so he wanted to bring harsh words to this individual who was needy. And he scoured the Bible and he could only find repeated references to God's love for those who are distressed, God's care for those who are poor, God's compassion for those who find themselves in need. Outside of warnings of slothfulness, warnings concerning laziness, again and again, God's emphasis throughout the scriptures is his love and his care for those who find themselves in circumstances of need. As a deacon, one must not be shallow, insincere in his labors. He must not be undependable or two-faced. His labors need to be done with uprightness, with sincerity. And so much time sometimes can be spent in a home maybe discussing personal things. It requires a sympathetic, a loving heart, a steady, unwavering character and a word that's dependable. Not making promises that he can't fulfill that require a decision of the diaconate. Putting himself in a bind then. He says one thing, makes promises, and now the whole diaconate perhaps decides a different course of action. 
so that one is careful and one is trustworthy. He must be free from prejudice. But then also not given to much wine. We know there's nothing wrong with alcohol as long as it's used in moderation. Deacons must be temperate, not making use of too much wine. And we understand again here the difficulty unique even to this office. Among those who are needy, often the problem is not that they don't have the money, but they're using it incorrectly. And many are spending it perhaps for alcohol where they ought not be. For a deacon then to be engaged in making use of too much alcohol, what kind of an example will that be now as he's trying to work with and labor in love with this family? The temptation might be at times to indulge in too much, but then we set a bad example. And not only is this true of the deacons, it's true of all of the office bearers and, of course, the whole congregation. We're called a sobriety. We're called not to give ourselves over to excess. What happens when one gives himself over to excess also? His tongue becomes loose, and now he begins to talk. And perhaps now he begins to say things he ought not say about matters that are private. Such is the blamelessness that's required here. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Not a man who gives himself for the sake of riches and wealth. And again, how does that fit with the words and the admonitions that one brings about being stewards, about the importance of giving for the sake of the church, the calling that God gives to believers to put Christ first when that one is not walking in that manner. Immediately we think of Judas. Judas who used the office for his own benefit, carrying the bag and using the bag for himself and to serve self. Those who occupy the office do not do so for self, not in order to rob and to steal from the church, to misuse the funds, to pad their pockets with the mercies of Christ. One who loves money more than the flock will not be able to represent Jesus Christ. But then positively, grave, that is serious-minded, steadfast, honest, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, no reservations with regard to the truth. Knowing the truth, loving the truth, and living in a way that reflects the truth. So that their conscience is not having to be constantly accused. They're not confessing one thing and living another thing as hypocrites. But they're maintaining the truth and they're walking a straight path then that demonstrates and reflects their love for the truth and their commitment to it. They enjoy a boldness then in the faith and a boldness, as we stated, that's necessary. Knowing the truth and knowing the scriptures, a willingness now with boldness to come to members of the congregation in order to set forth the calling to be stewards, what it means to give for the sake of Christ. Blameless. Enemies may bring charges against them, but the charges will be proved empty. That's the idea here. It's important that we note that these qualifications are not what a man thinks himself to be. Often we think ourselves to be all of these things. No, the emphasis here is on what do others think about you? What can others say about you and about your office and your place? Do they look at you and do they see you as one who's grave, who's sober-minded? Do they see you as one who's blameless? That is, your character is such that 
No one can get a finger under it. That's the idea of blamelessness. Though someone may try to come up with a charge, they're going to be proved hollow. The outstanding example in the Bible, which is extremely humbling, is Daniel. Remember those men, those wicked men, watched Daniel constantly, day after day. And they couldn't find anything wrong with him other than this man prays to his God. That's the beautiful expression of blamelessness. Their walk and their way of life exemplary and a model to others. And then if they're married, qualification even extends to their wives. That's striking in verse 11 because that's not mentioned with regard to pastors. It's not mentioned with regard to elders. But now it's mentioned with regard to the deacons. And so that causes us to ask the question, why? Why in verse 11 do we have now a reference to their wives? Now some try to say that this is a reference to diaconesses. And the idea that there were women that were placed in office as diaconesses and therefore those diaconesses had to have these qualifications. But there's no reference being made here, diaconesses. And there's no reference either to that separate office in other places of Scripture. So that that would be a stretch to make that application here. Others say, well, it's included here among the deacons, but it's also to be included among the wives of elders as well. And we understand that. Of course, that would be the case, that all the women of the office bears ought to be distributing these specific traits. But why specifically the deacon? Likewise, like, likely the reason had to do with this and still continues to do with this. In the deacon's labor, matters are laid upon the deacon sometimes that will necessitate their wives being involved. Perhaps there's a woman who's sick or in need of something, and therefore the wives then are involved to a certain degree. The deacons were caring for the wick, were caring for the needy and for those who were sick. And sometimes that service then would require husbands and wives going together perhaps to make some of these visits. These women would have to be careful with the knowledge now that they had with regard to that situation. And the knowledge that they had of members of the congregation. And important it was then that they not slander, they not engage in backbiting, that they not be given to much wine, that they be sober, and that they be those who are also exhibiting the qualifications of their husbands. Faithful in all things. That's striking. That's the conclusion there that's given in verse 11. And that really summarizes the calling that God gives to all of his saints and to all of the church, but especially the office bearers and their wives, faithful in all things. Godliness, holiness maintained in the congregation of Jesus Christ. Where husbands, where men, the deacons, are husbands, qualifications are given not only regarding their wives, but also regarding their family as well. They are to be rulers in their home, husbands of one wife. And the idea there is not to insist that all deacons need to be married, but acknowledging the prevalence of polygamy in their day. Polygamy was alive and well. And it was important, and it continues to be important in our day, where men marry, divorce, remarry, that we understand. The man who's placed into office is a husband of one wife, not two wives, not three wives, one wife. And that within that office, he also carries himself in a manner that he rules his children and his own house well. His godliness is displayed already in his home, and that's evident then. Now, beloved, as we read through these qualifications, as we 
feel the weight of them. The response naturally is, who, who's qualified? Who can take on this responsibility? I know myself and I know my own weaknesses and my sinfulness. And we realize then by God's grace alone are we able to maintain that walk to which he calls us. Realizing that these qualifications are not, first of all, natural, they're spiritual. And that's really, really important for us to understand as a church. We don't put into office a man because he has financial acumen, because he has gifts in the realm of finances. And therefore, because of that, we're going to make him a deacon. We don't put into office someone who's a good manager of time and resources merely. The men who must be put into office are men of God who are qualified to visit and to comfort those who are distressed. The questions we ask are, does he know the scriptures? Can he bring the scriptures to comfort the distressed? Is he one who meets the qualifications that are given here? And notice, the qualifications for deacon do not involve that he is able to use a computer and that he's able to serve well the financial situation, perhaps, of the congregation. The Holy Spirit calls us to put in office men who are spiritually qualified. God will use the gifts that God gives to these men, and we're thankful that God gives to spiritually qualified men. Gifts in finance, gifts in being able to be orderly, gifts in supervision and being able to rule well. But the qualifications are spiritual. Now we realize these qualifications are never going to be found in perfection as we live here below. But they must be evident. And we pray for our office bearers. We pray that God equips them and qualifies them for that office. And as office bearers, we read everything we can about the work. We must be in the Word. We pursue the passages that speak of being stewards. We pursue the passages that talk about giving. We want to know what God says to us, to His church, and how to maintain good order within the church of Jesus Christ. The importance of this, beloved, is this. We don't ordain a deacon in order that hopefully the responsibilities he has now are going to straighten out his life. That's not the manner in which the church operates. We don't ordain a man in order that now his situation and circumstance will become more sober because previously he wasn't demonstrating such soberness in his life. We don't ordain a man into the office of deacon merely to train him to be an elder. That's not the idea. We ordain men who display compassion, who display the gifts that God gives, and there are some men who are best qualified as deacon in their 60s and 70s than elder. And we're thankful for these men and for the gifts that God has given to them. Such men, finally, must be proven, verse 10. This has been taken to reply not to a formal examination of sorts, but rather to the prayerful work that's done by a counsel, a consistory, in considering and then presenting these men for nomination. And then the prayerfulness of the congregation then for electing the men. The council must make sure that it does its best to nominate men who are proven within the congregation. They give evidence of their godliness and the spiritual characteristics. And that the congregation then takes heed also to that qualification and sees to it that these men are men who are equipped with the Holy Spirit, men who have displayed the spiritual traits that are necessary for the office. It's in this context that the apostle speaks then 
that they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. Deacons must be all of the above. And being all of the above, they labor then in the consciousness that their labor is on behalf of God. And the blessing on that labor is going to come from God alone. No matter how diligent, how faithfully they bring the word and distribute the alms, if God doesn't bless it, all is in vain. And that's the experience of all of the offices. The word goes forth, and we prayerfully sound forth that word in the confidence that God will bless that word, and God will bring the fruit that's necessary. Paul here states this blessing, that a special reward is on these men who have so occupied themselves, and that God crowns their work and their labors. Now, that's not always going to be able to be seen. There are times when the labor is more frustrating than fruitful, but we leave it in God's hands. And we understand that the fruit is going to be seen also and especially in the men. Paul saw that in Stephen. Paul saw how God used Stephen in such a marvelous way for the sake of his church. And he saw the spirit that God was working in Stephen, even though Stephen was opposed, he was persecuted. There seemed to be very little, if any, fruit on his labors. God was at work in the life of Stephen. And God was making Stephen one, who was a man crafted and fashioned by God and prepared for his place in glory. The blessing is that to which we cling as we labor in our offices, knowing that our labor is for God. It's for his glory. The work will receive his blessing in his time and according to his good pleasure. As menial sometimes, as difficult sometimes as the labor seems to be, we understand the high lofty calling that God gives. As much wisdom is required, and sometimes we think ourselves to be lacking that wisdom. We cry out to God for that wisdom, and we pray that God will strengthen and equip us, and we are assured that God will grant that grace. And the holy performance, then, of these labors on behalf of Christ results in growth in wisdom. It results in growth in understanding. It results in men who are in the Word, men who are reading more than they've ever read before, perhaps, men who are laboring on behalf of Christ and for the sake of his glory, and as such, held in esteem and reverence for the office's sake and for Christ's sake. It's not unscriptural to talk about incentives. And here the apostle lays what we would say, really, incentives before the office bears, saying, labor diligently, labor faithfully, and as you do so, you're not earning something of yourself But this is the way in which God is pleased to work within his church. The reward is God's. The glory is God's. You're laboring for him. But take up your labor because often from a human perspective, there's not going to be much in terms of fruit. But you're laboring for the glory of God. And you do your labors and you take it up in that confidence. The work is a good work. That's what's emphasized here. This is a true saying, verse 1. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And the same thing is true with regard to the deacon. Their labor is glorious. Now let nobody think that because of the office they occupy, somehow they're higher or they have a more advanced place than other members of the congregation. We understand again, we are one in Christ. 
We are those who share the wonder of God's grace and God's goodness and God's mercy. But the blessings are blessings that come as we bring the word and as we are diligent in the word. The blessings don't come by just writing checks. The blessings don't come by just maintaining books. The blessings come by ministering to the saints, laboring as servants, visiting with members of the congregation, building relationships, showing compassion, showing interest in the lives of members, bringing the word as you have opportunity, showing the compassion of Christ to Christ's sheep. Great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus, is talked about here. A life that's free of reproach, a life that produces liberty. And that's the liberty with which God has given us in Jesus Christ. Christ's life works liberty. We who were in bondage to sin have been made free. And now as we live in that freedom, there's a boldness that's evident in our lives, a boldness that flows out of that liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. It's not my boldness, it's not your boldness, it's the boldness of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He who paid for my sin, he who strengthens me to live unto him, and he who assures me my labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so I press on. I'm busy in the work. A liberty that's not a license to sin, but rather a liberty in the framework of thankfulness to my God and gratefulness for the place that he's pleased to use me in the sake of his, for the sake of his church. A liberty that causes me to become more and more grounded in the truth and causes me increasingly to realize my life is not about me. It's about service. It's about Christ. It's about seeking to give of myself for those around me. A life of sin, a life of evil, a life of hypocrisy brings shame. And again, that boldness was seen, was it not, in Stephen? Stephen, standing before the leaders of the Jews, facing his own demise, yet given boldness in that circumstance. Again, we know not what the future may hold. There may be trouble and persecution and unrest for the church of Jesus Christ. But we pray for our office bearers and we're thankful for the gifts that God gives them in order in boldness to stand on behalf of Christ and faithfully to bring his word for the glory and honor of his name. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen the men whom thou hast called to office, especially the deacons. Give them much wisdom in their calling and in the labor in which thou dost place them. And grant that we as a congregation might pray for and remember our office bearers. That we might respect them for the office that they occupy. And that they as servants of Christ might minister and might reflect his work in our midst. Forgive us and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.